This is the Criterion cast. Uh, this is Trevor. I am joined here tonight by Scott Nye. Hi, Scott. How are you? Fantastic. How are you? I am great. And David Blakesley. David, how are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> oh, I'm shoot. Gonna, I should have started with music. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, because we're here tonight to talk about Jacques Demy's 1964 film, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And I'm not going to waste any time getting right down to it. This may be my favorite film in the Criterion Collection. I don't know. It's certainly up there a lot of the time. So, are, are you two uh, going to try and take it down a peg? Or do you guys like this film too? Uh, David, why don't we start with you? Oh, I'm all over it. Yeah, this is a wonderful film. Uh, I guess my opening line is that while you're watching it, while you're in the grips of these uh, emotions and and ideas that it stirs up you you know at least for me i'll just put it subjectively it feels like it's the greatest movie ever made i'm, I'm not going to maybe say that coming out of the spell but while you're in it it's it's sensational a really wonderful experience every time all right and scott how about i i think i know that you enjoy this film scott i remember a period when i would sign on to twitter and read your tweets and <laughs> It was Demi all the time, so... It, it was a lot of all caps, uh, Demi calls out, just uh, uh, Yeah, this is... It's actually not my favorite Demi film. I, I place uh, Young Girls of Rochefort above and beyond most films, but... Uh, and this is one I've actually taken... It took me a long time to really kind of get on board with this, but especially the more I see it and the more I think about it, I really very thoroughly love it. I think it's one that really... Um, appreciates the more life experience you gain and the more kind of perspective you gain on your own youth and your own uh, romantic histories uh, and just your opening up of appreciation. It's a very unusual film in a lot of ways and it's not a uh, style that we usually see. So it, I think uh, it tends to hit people immediately or it turns them off immediately or maybe it takes them getting used to. I don't know that there are people who just kind of feel like it's just a so-so movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe maybe for the first little bit, play the Scott who didn't really appreciate it, just so that we don't <laughs> soak it up too much with love here, and then okay. uh, then w- then we'll come. I'll edit all this out, and it'll f- sound like we had you come around by the end, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, um, no, you know, I remember watching this for the first time. I think it was in the late '90s in college, and I loved it. But I hadn't rewatched it um, until the Criterion Collection came out with this set in 2014, I want to say. So, geez, it's been a few years already. And I was a little bit nervous to revisit it because I don't like musicals as much as I used to from back at that time period in my life. And I wondered how much of it was just an infatuation with, uh, with Catherine Deneuve because she's just radiant in this film, I think. And so I was a little bit scared to put it in, and I, if anything, loved it even more. So I think you're right, Scott, that learning about life a little bit more, getting some distance from from youth, and seeing what life has to offer, and sometimes how life takes it away just by dumb chance sometimes, uh, those kinds of things really make this film powerful for me. And so I liked it even more now than I used to, uh, even though for years I would call it one of my favorite films. Now I'm just pretty sure it's it's right up there. <laughs> I think it's a haunting film. I think it's just chuck full of ghosts of what could have been and what isn't. And I, I, I love how Demi puts it all together. So, David, 
last time when we did the episode on young Mr. Lincoln, you failed to read the blurb from the back of the Criterion disc. I'm sorry. So we have, we're, well, we're going to get it straight tonight. Okay. And uh, you have <laughs> graciously uh, offered to read the, the blurb for The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. I'm very happy to fulfill my obligations here. An angelically beautiful Catherine Deneuve was launched to stardom by this dazzling musical heart-tugger from Jacques Demy. She plays an umbrella shop owner's delicate daughter, glowing with first love for a handsome garage mechanic played by Nino Castelnuovo. When the boy is shipped off to fight in Algeria, the two lovers must grow up quickly. Exquisitely designed in a kaleidoscope of colors, and told entirely through the lilting songs of the great composer Michel Legrand, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg is one of the most revered and unorthodox movie musicals of all time. Jeez, That's David, it. you can uh, you can do penance anytime okay. you want. <laughs> that was great. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> you know, this, the the, the, my last few days have been filled with this film. Uh, rewatched it a couple nights ago. I've got the uh, old soundtrack album on vinyl been listening to it on my kind of desktop at work in the background the instrumental version the soundtrack version uh just you know just letting my brain and uh mind and heart saturate in in, in all those feels and it's it really is uh you know and I, you know you said something earlier like you know you'd kind of forgotten about it or maybe it drifted away from it and i think i i even kind of came into this kind of recording and prep time thinking oh yeah that's a that's a fun film it's a little little of a, of a trifle it's a, a little bit of a you know a, a period piece and of course the colors are pretty you know those catchy tunes and of course you know the the music just kind of instantly comes to mind but i think i had a little bit forgotten the emotive power of it and uh that this isn't just eye candy and uh, toe tapper hum along you know uh uh, you know, entertainment fest. This is something that really strikes a much deeper chord. Yeah, I agree. It 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 feels like a simple film in many ways. The premise is pretty simple. It, the overarching narrative is that it's 1957, and there are two young lovers coming of age in Cherbourg. This is this is Guy, the the man played by Nino Castelnuovo, and then 17 year old Genevieve, played by Catherine Deneuve. And we just see them loving each other in the first act, singing songs and and going around. And then, listeners, we're going to just forego any kind of spoiler warning from here on out. Um, Guy is drafted to military service in Algeria and is forced to leave. And the last half of the film is, first off, it's... it's kind of a barren thing. You got all the colors of the first part, and then you've got this kind of depressing second part as they've drifted away. And we'll get into some of the details, I'm sure. But they each marry someone else and kind of move on with life. But there's, to me, so much more going on, um, in particular as we look at how Demi has constructed it. Uh, so, yeah, a simple, simple premise, but to really explore some of those deep things that that I think really really tug at us every single day, even if we don't necessarily recognize them. You know, the, these these moments from our past, these these idols, these these beautiful things that have happened in our past, uh, you know, I think they, they become a part of us in a way that we don't always recognize, and I think this film uh, really hits upon that nicely. Uh, Scott, do you have anything uh, 
that you wanted to say, and we can we can just jump right into it and 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 get moving. Um, but I guess any other preliminaries? Uh, no other preliminaries. I, I think you guys kind of covered the overarching feel of it very well. So the film is famously a, a pure musical. It's sung from the first moment when some old man asks if his car is done at the shop. <laughs> and Guy says, yes, it is, you know, and sings that. And it's that way throughout. And so I, I, I hope people give it a shot because that first little little bit can feel maybe a little bit cheesy. Um, but I'm with David. It, it pretty quickly really pulls you along. And I would, I'm very willing to kind of go through that first little bit because of this, this great little opening that it has. Uh, we look at the docks of Cherbourg and it's kind of, you know, it's a beautiful morning, but the colors aren't there yet. And then the umbrellas start coming out into the rain and the colors just start to overtake it and it becomes a little boisterous and, and we well, move into this time. It's an amazing opening shot. You know, you have this kind of, it's it's kind of an industrial landscape you know with the with the ships and there's this kind of kind of nicely muted kind of hill in the background i guess this is like the port of Cherbourg or the docks or something like that but the camera just kind of tilts down it's i guess it would be a pan shot if it was going horizontal but you know whatever the technical term is it's it's on the level and then it just dips down to a straight down shot yeah 90 degrees so it's pointing straight down uh, the rain kicks in and then the umbrellas start coming out. And, you know, one of the things I guess in the rewatches is that you just start recognizing some of the um, the, the visual, the choreography, uh, even the credits. As the credits scroll across, there's some interesting things happening with the angles in which the pedestrians are are you know cutting across the screen or when the uh, there's a cart that rolls across and the umbrellas are all in a line and the you know, the title scrolls across there. And there's just some really interesting little grace notes. It's it's very impeccably uh, constructed. And I, that's the kind of thing that, again, a closer rewatch and kind of getting absorbed in this world kind of brought brought to me, uh, brought to my awareness uh, as we kind of, you know, dug deeper into it. It's like, you know, you're you're definitely into the jazzy toe tapping music and, and all of that kind of, you know, launches you into it. But you know, even the way the you know, the garage sign lights up, right, there's a certain note that's hit and it's just very, very uh tightly crafted. You know, you you're you're really seeing a a a cinematic genius at work, even though to me had not really, you know, I mean he he had made some films and he'd certainly won some awards, got some recognition, but you're really impressed by just the talent that this young man had to to make a uh, an impeccable, you know, kind of a masterpiece, you know, almost out of the gate. Do you have any thoughts on the opening shot, Scott? I have a few more, but I I don't want to talk over you. No, I appreciate it. Uh, not the opening shot specifically, although I mean, I'm always I, I think there's kind of a small kind of technical bravado that, like David mentioned, where it tilts down and then the rain starts. And at first, every time I see it, I always think that's like a really smart economic move that they only have to get the rain going in that like one spot as opposed to making it appear <laughs> as if it's covering the whole shore. Uh, but it still, you know, kind of sets the mood of things. But then the camera tilts back up and it's like that kind of reopens the world. And uh, for those who are kind of uh, tuned to, fi- to spot these sort of things, it lets you know that, yeah, like David said, this guy really knows what he's doing and is really capable of executing a 
larger vision, which I think is evident in his earlier films too. I mean, Lola's a really remarkable feature mm-hmm. debut in that regard, so gracefully shot. Uh, and here he, he really kind of expands on that and what he did in Bay of Angels. You know, the camera feels like it's kind of constantly moving or repositioning itself. And each time it feels like a, another evolution. And that opening shot really establishes that. The only other thing I wanted to say kind of about the beginning is that, um, yeah, it can feel kind of cheesy at first to have everyone burst into the song, but I like that he goes kind of bold with it. Um, it it's re- the music starts out really bombastic, and especially by the time he's getting off work and all the guys are announcing their evening plans and he's going to Carmen, you know, it's like, <laughs> you, you know really what you're in for and as kind of downbeat and sad as the movie becomes, it doesn't waste any breath getting to the jubilance it wants to create. Yeah, I, 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 and I'm going to talk about Lola a little bit later because I think it's an integral part of this film for me. Oh, for sure. Is how, how he brings that film into this one. But I, I love how, you know, for a film so notoriously colorful and and that's going to become very quickly jazzy and upbeat, there is that kind of somber note at the beginning. I mean, the beginning song is the the love theme of them being parted. That's what's playing. And it's played in this very soft style. And it's a, it's a drab yellow and brown heel that we're looking at with the, with the bay right there. And then the, the camera drops. And I think it starts to kind of make us put us in mind of a fairy tale or an idol, something different. You know, this isn't life as it actually is. This is life as we like to see it at night when we're getting off work and we have no care in the world because we're just about to meet with our date or something like that. And it it's a beautiful technical way of, of showing that transition. You know, you've got the people kind of lumbering along, you've got black umbrellas, and then the color just starts to pop, pop, pop. And... It's just fun. I mean, the, and I think part of it is that this is Guy and Genevieve, and they have no thought for the future other than that it better dang well be together. And th- to them, that's all life is. It's completely open. Potential in front of them is not really affected by the day-to-day struggle. It's all for this these times together. And and I think it's – I love when they when they see each other across the street again. I just think – you know, I think Catherine Deneuve is beautiful in that shot. My wife thinks that that Guy um, is very handsome. Nino Castelnuovo is very attractive as he's standing across the street, kind of waiting for her. And it's like, yeah, th- these are two young lovers that are. We just we want to see them succeed. We want to see them together because they're beautiful together. Life should be this way, you know. Well, yeah, and it's it's certainly an evocation, whether we had such a charmed adolescence or young adulthood <laughs> ourselves or not, but it certainly brings to mind all those happiest moments. And again, you know, I'm 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 viewing it from a, a sense of, you know, uh, you know, memories of of that age. And and I'm sure a lot of viewers probably or a lot of listeners here probably have moved on past their late teens. But hey, for the teenagers in the audience, you know, enjoy this if you if you dig it. Uh, you know, if you're digging a 1963 film, and uh, you're a teenager in 2018, more power to you. <laughs> but but <laughs> I digress. Um, you know, it's just it's that burst of vitality, and especially you know the kind of the working class setting. You know, the the shopkeeper's daughter, the the garage mechanic. I mean, they're obviously a couple of pretty humble kids uh, from the socioeconomic strata, although he's a, a notch or two lower than she is, and that ends up 
kind of playing itself out over the course of the film. But you're yeah, you're, it's just teeming with this sense of of possibilities, of energy, of 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 recognizing your own beauty and attractiveness, and somebody who reflects that in you, who desires you, and who you desire and accepts you. You know, I mean, it's just that mm-hmm. that in, incredible chemistry of 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 how this is really happening and isn't life incredible and isn't it amazing that you know we've we found each other they're and, unperturbed yeah. by yeah right. their situation to the point where when she says you smell like gasoline they're just oh well that's just like any other perfume you know they sure they they're they're not they're kind of blinded to economic re- you know problems that might come up and other things that are going to be coming their way that might make this dreamland kind of start to crash down. Well, and there's those little, those little signs, you know, um, she's, she's beautiful in her kind of, you know, orange, uh, sort of opera theater dress. Uh, but be careful. There's pins in it. <laughs> he puts his arm <laughs> around her, pokes himself. It's a moment of comedy, but there's also that, just that little reminder that, you know, pain is on the way and that, that this little, this dream, this, this bubble they're in, that there's, there's some, you know, there's going to be you know some some reckoning. There's going to be some moments where uh, reality is going to intrude uh, in, in a not so pleasant way. David's uh, point about uh, kind of the signs of things to come did remind me of uh, Guy's aunt, who he's taking care of along with um, I don't know. I gather like a family friend, Madeline. Uh, never quite. Clear <laughs> That's on, how I've always looked at it. Yeah, her yeah. precise relationship to the family. Um, but she's kind of a servant girl. I guess I kind of see her sort of more in that kind of plain class of, well, her, her lot is just to be kind of a caretaker for this old woman. Yeah, that's so, true. Because yeah. later in the film, the notion that she would like stick around seems like it seems like she expects to have to go off. So, yeah, she probably is kind of hired help. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, there's the fact that Guy's parents aren't around anymore and Genevieve's uh, father, too, is absent from the picture. But there's the sense that... You know, they're not exactly living picture-perfect lives. They just are immensely happy with one another. And between uh, Guy's aunt's illness and then Genevieve's absent father, like, there's just all these kind of signs that there is potential for things to go wrong in this world. And uh, even Genevieve's mother uh, predicts how things will go wrong for them when she's like, well, he hasn't done his army duty yet. And sure enough, he gets drafted uh almost as yeah. soon as kind of they're in their most rapturous state. Yeah, these adults are reminders of what's to come. And at this point, Genevieve and Guy don't really want to hear it. And they're not doing it in a mean way. You know, I don't think Genevieve's mom is... I think she loves her daughter so much. And so she's not trying to necessarily dissuade her in kind of an overbearing and pushy way. She just knows the economic inevitabilities the army service she just it's sad i you know i i get that she probably would just love her daughter to have this and have it forever but her mom's a little wiser she well, knows yeah, it's she's, not going to last she's probably been exactly there i mean genevieve in the start of the film is 16 years yeah. old which means she would and the film i think starts in 57 so she would have been born in 41 you know right during the french occupation when things were really hard for a lot of people in france especially mm. the lower classes um so she and between the absent father too, she probably maybe just hooked up with a guy and never saw him again, or 
the father got taken away by war or, you know, any number of things could have happened. And yeah, she, there's that little bit towards the end where the mother's talking about, there was that young gentleman who wooed me and right. says you would have been better off marrying him. And, and you can just sort of see, yeah, you're right. Mother is, uh, you know, kind of seeing the tracks that she walked down and her, her daughter is right at this pivot point <laughs> and she's like, honey, you know, you've got this guy and, and maybe we don't want to get too far into the plot quite yet but you know you're right there is this generational wisdom and this reminiscing of what might have been for us you know and i think again that's where you know maybe trevor and i are coming from and then probably you to some degree as well as we as we go through life as we recognize uh, like you said your our romantic histories and the the chapters that we've lived through and the lessons that we've learned i think we bring and we 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 see a lot of that kind of reflecting back at us in this you know very you know, beautiful, romantic, rhapsodic telling of that age-old cycle of life that that we all just go through. And her mother is never, I mean, I think the harshest she comes down on her is when she finds out that she's been lying about where she's been. You know, she never, as much as she tries to encourage a different romantic outlook, she doesn't, like, prevent her from seeing him. She doesn't, like, say that her feelings are wrong or invalid or anything. She's just like, you know, here's where I've been, here's where I think you'll be. Um, and you know, we can change that situation now, even though it can seem unhappy at first. Uh, I, I think she is a, a pretty fair character, all things considered. Yeah. I, oh, I, I think the mother come across, comes across very, very well in this and in her portrayal, she, she's never judgmental towards the key. She's always just kind of a, a compassionate realist. With a little bit of wisdom as to, you know, she does know what's coming to an extent but I think she also recognizes the beauty of where her daughter is and is looking on it with a little bit of pain. Like, I, I, I want her to experience this. I'm sad for the pain that I think she's heading toward. And, you know, if I can help her get some stability that I don't have in my life, you know, she runs an umbrella boutique. It, it, you know, she, she, they're not necessarily going to be comfortable, and that brings in some other things later on. But she just doesn't want that for her daughter. You know, she recognizes that this pain is going to continue and that, you know, young love and these idols, they they just can't, they can't quite sustain reality um, too well. And, but, and yet at the same time, boy, it, it sure is beautiful to, to, to watch and to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. I think the mother's main warning is just like, don't expect this to last forever. You know, I think that's something my parents told me often when I was dating at that age. It's like you do sort of expect these things to just go on and on. But, um, you know, keep your head about you and you'll be all right. right. It's it's just the surge of those emotions. And again, you know, when you're, uh, uh, you know, a, a person staring across the way at somebody as beautiful as these two young, young lovers are, <laughs> there's a lot to get excited about, you know? So it is, it is the emotions. It's the erotic, the physical attractions. It's just, it's just the sense of, of, of awesomeness that, uh, that young first love really generates in, in so many people, you know? And, mm-hmm. And it, it is, there's a comical aspect to it because it, it does feel so ultimate. And, you, and you know, from the perspective of a more experienced adult, you see the naivete and the, you know, the, <laughs> the kind of swooning comical aspect of it. Uh, but, but here it, it is, it's, it's played up and, and, and depicted very sweetly as a, 
very earnest. Uh, this is not just a crush. And, and there's not a mockery of those feelings either. There's a recognition that there's something you know, very pure and, and very precious. And, and I don't say that in a condescending way, but something mm-hmm. really, really priceless and irreplaceable about whoever that first love really turns out to be. And I think that's, again, not just another really winsome note about this film because it, it, it never, it never becomes scornful. Although, you know, when it gets into the, uh, you know, generating the pathos, it's, it's pretty, uh, unrelenting again it's it's the combination of the music the visual beauty the the acting too i mean the, these young people really convey so much in their facial expressions their body language whether it's joy and exuberance or just you know gut-wrenching heart-tearing sadness as you recognize the the peril that this that this relationship is in as kind of real world events kind of intrude and and change the script. Yeah, I really like the kind of posture they get into towards the time when they realize that he's going to be leaving and they just keep falling into this uh, posture where she's kind of leaning against him and holding his hand and he's trying to sit upright and it's just a very very moving uh, pose that they concocted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that you made me think of, David, is kind of the tragedy when you do grow up and recognize that some of this goes away. I remember it wasn't like my my first you know relationship, but I remember when I was uh, dating a girl, and we'd been dating for a couple of years, and I realized it wasn't going to work out. I thought it I thought it was going to, and I loved her family so much. And when I realized it wasn't going to work out, and that we were going to have to kind of extract and and reconfigure our lives, and all of that future went away. You know that was pretty sad. It was also sad to realize though that it's going to be painful for a while. And then, I hope, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to become indifferent to it. Because if you don't, what kind of agony is that for the rest of your life? Or at the very least, you got to learn how to not just move on, but also kind of tame those feelings and, and let them go. And I remember sitting there before we had broken up and before we'd kind of started that process and thinking, what an awful thought that I'm kind of looking forward to when this is less meaningful to me, you know, when I don't care <laughs> yeah. anymore, when, yeah. when the pain is gone and I can move on and, and, and just do this with someone else or something like that. You mm-hmm. know, that was, mm-hmm. that was a really sobering and um, probably maturing in a, and I don't know, good kind of way or bad kind of way, but, <laughs> but just that. Yeah. And th- th- so this film kind of takes us through that transition of this power and you know when he leaves and when when they're singing to each other and she's saying i will wait for you all my life and then she sings je ne papa je ne papa and just is saying wait i I can't do this you can't leave
I can't stand it, right? That I, I won't be able to bear it, right? I, and and I, I love the part where she says later on, I would have died for him, so why aren't I dead? Just that realization, mm-hmm. life goes mm-hmm. on. I, I shouldn't be here anymore. Life without him was before unimaginable and, and unacceptable. And yet here I am. You know? Again, it's it's that it's that rush of emotions and just how incredibly persuasive and overwhelming and, and really controlling they are in a way. I mean, you know, whether it's a crime of passion or just kind of being swept away and, and carried along by, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the powerful forces of, of your desire or your sense of loyalty or your your imagined future together. Uh, you know, your your situation there, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> I, I can relate to it in some ways. I'm sure a lot of the others can. But, you know, that's a situation where you're kind of making a decision that's based on a, maybe, a, a, maybe a slightly more advanced level of maturity than these two young people who really had their future stolen from them, you know? And right. I think this Mine was by the, choice. This one's exactly. by, and, and the, by the a reflection. fist of history. Right. Yeah. You had a reflection that maybe there's something, some seed of incompatibility between the two of us where we'd be better off kind of going our own ways. They didn't really even have a moment to to think that part through in fact they they heard that or certainly Jean-Viev did from her mother uh what kind of life can he provide for you he's just a mechanic but you know before that even really sank in uh, here comes the draft card and and this does get also get into some of the you know this is not just about you know teen romance and oh isn't that sweet uh or or how sad but this is also about politics and culture and economics and and i think that's another very uh fascinating angle that i'm I'm not sure it really uh sank all the way in in my earlier watches but this time in particular it really did as you think about the fact that this poor working class guy uh is a form, if you will, of cannon fodder. You know this this Algerian war, which probably to most Americans is is just a little historical footnote, just kind of like yeah, yeah, France and Algeria had some kind of beef in the fifties and whatnot. But you know, it's every bit as as awful and disruptive and catastrophic as we think about the Vietnam War or really any other you know armed conflict where you're sending you know thousands of of young men, especially into a a colonial war where it's kind of a war of aggression from a large power against, you know, people, you know, struggling for liberation. And, uh, you know, these young men are put into the service of a, you know, really kind of a, a dying empire and, and what do they have to show for it? And so, you know, there's, there's some interesting supplements here that bring out some of the political angles a little bit more, which to me was very discreet. He didn't, you know, clobber people over the head, but, you just mentioned Algeria. That's going to maybe communicate things to uh, his contemporary viewers, perhaps that yeah, especially you know, like I say, don't really sink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They don't, maybe don't really sink into us quite the same way, or we don't view the Algerian War as this awful tragedy of history. It's just kind of somebody else's issues or problems. Well, it's interesting too because in the context of the French New Wave. Um, and especially kind of in the years to follow, to me, was kind of viewed as outmoded that he was just so in love with these old fashioned ways and wasn't, you know, as hip or attuned as Godard. But I mean, if you think about it between this film and the Algerian War and the Vietnam War and Model Shop, and then, ah, shoot, there was another example I had, but I've lost it now. But anyway, uh, he, he, 
looked at you know the world around him it just wasn't like the center of his focus in the way it was for Godard you know Godard was railing against the whole system but to me was more interested in how it affected people and individuals and how like David said you kind of get uh, torn apart by the sands of time um, but at the same time I like that it doesn't let Genevieve off the hook in terms of her the decision she ultimately has to make between waiting for Guy or accepting the proposal of this very uh, wealthy dashing man you know there's no part where Guy is like presumed dead or she you know she says she stops getting letters from him to a certain extent but you know you could excuse that by the you know demands of being in war and all but I guess there's what I'm saying is there's no point where her decision is made more understandable you know we have to kind of reckon with the fact that her priorities change over time and that her affection for Guy probably subsided a little bit with his absence and just that, you know, and the baby and, and well, the and certainly the baby, but, uh, just that, you know, the demands of life are so multifaceted that there's no kind of simple explanation or way to excuse letting go of young love. You just kind of at some point do, for one reason or another, either you're forced to, or you feel you're forced to, or you just kind of move past it. Uh, it's uh, it's such a mature look at how, yes, the world influences us, and there are economic factors and political factors that influence our lives every day. But we still make decisions every moment of how we incorporate the hand we're dealt and kind of how we play the cards that we can where we can. Um, yeah, it, it's. It's just such a mature film. <laughs> well, and let's bring in Roland Cassard, uh, the the boyfriend that, well, the, the eventual husband of Genevieve, uh, because he, for, for listeners who don't know, he is the protagonist in Jacques Demy's first film, Lola. It's not only the same actor, but he's playing the same character. And he even sings a song about Lola in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And in many ways, Lola is kind of his story of, lo- of finding a first love that he thought was lost and then losing her again and, and watching her, her go away. And so he comes into this film with a lot of knowledge and even some sympathy for Genevieve. But he certainly also is like, OK, now it's time. Uh, the, oh, I, I can I can I know where this girl is at. I know how she's feeling. I can comfort her in that, and she's beautiful. I'm I'm going to pursue this, and I I, I love this part of the film when he's singing about Lola, um, because it it just, I, well, I think the first part of the film in many ways is about togetherness, and then the second part is about absence, and Demi pretty consistently well, shows. It kind of says that right stages. there. Yeah, subtitle, literally right? the title <laughs> section too. <laughs> Oh, well, see, see, that must be where I got it. And I, I Brilliant guess, insight. <laughs> I forgot about that. I, but I, I, I guess what I, when I look at this, I look at it more from the ways that he shows it of empty places, places that were bustling, not just in this film, but also in Lola, that, um, what is the name of that place in Nantes, the Pomeray, Plus Pomeray. Anyway, like the that, very yeah. bustling um, shopping area from Lola, it shows it in, in the Umbrellas of Cherbourg completely empty. I mean, time has passed here. Lola is not there anymore. Uh, Roland Cassard is not there anymore. And we see places where Guy and, and um, Genevieve have been at the beginning, and then they're empty afterwards. And not only that, but Genevieve is 
gone from up for a lot of the last part of the film. You know, we kind of keep suffering these absences that that are more than just um, Guy being gone to another place. It's these characters moving on and their lives, you know, th- these moments of their lives, the reminders of the ghosts of what was there, but that are now just figments, you know, just things you can remember, maybe. Yeah, and the portrait of... Uh, Roland is another way in which the film doesn't let its characters or the audience off the hook. I mean, given what Roland went through in Lola and given his position in the story, it'd be very easy to make him into some kind of cad who's just kind of like mm-hmm. indifferent to Genevieve and just thinks she's the hot young thing. Um, but he remains this immensely empathetic and sympathetic character that we saw in Lola and he has somehow held on to uh, that level of emotionality, even if he's more kind of refined than he was then. He's kind of found a way to channel that into productive means, you know, uh, he's very sympathetic to the position Genevieve and her mother are in. He doesn't want to pressure her while still, you know, very clearly announcing his intentions. But even just the way they kind of, I love the shot of them walking down the shore. It's one of the first times too you see him without a raincoat. He's so often kind of in this huge bulky raincoat, but here he has this very refined suit and he's just kind of strolling with his, I think his hands are in his pockets and, you know, he's not, pressuring her in any way. He's not making any physical advances. His dialogue is very kind and even measured. Uh, and he is, you know, he may not be the, you know, fiery romance that she had with uh, Guy, but he's an immensely cap- uh, eligible bachelor, so to speak, not only because of his economic position, but just he's just a, such a kind, caring person. You can tell that, you know, whatever fire they're uh, marriage may lack, he would make up for in just uh, a degree of concern for her and a degree of uh, genuine care and love of her that would never be lacking. Yeah, he's he's fundamentally decent, and I mean, you know, he, you know, to me, and in, in the script, really almost goes out of his way to really impress that that you know, like you're right, he's not just swooping in as an opportunist, and yet I, I do want to go back to that kind of first encounter because you know the only reason that Roland even meets Genevieve is that you know uh, the mother comes to sell her jewels because her shop again is facing economic peril. It looks like somebody's called in the note and they've got to come up with 80,000 francs within the next few days or something like that. And and there's really no other way around it other than to sell her precious jewels, which, you know, beyond just the cash value, there's a symbolism. There's kind of, it's kind of like mother's rainy day account, her retirement, her kind of last vestige for, uh, you know, getting by when the times get tough. And as she's sitting here trying to, you know, persuade this distinguished silver-haired gentleman to even give her an advance if he can't just buy the jewels from her outright <laughs> she has this other precious jewel sitting right next to her and that's that, what uh, he's Ro- watching the whole time Ex- exactly and then the, so the non-verbals are just like on fire there because he's you know he's completely looking off off camera here <laughs> and his his eye is is fixed and i'm sure jean Vieve as an attractive young woman is is quite perceptive to you know the male gaze and all of that uh but and so she she wonders what is his angle and where is this thing going, uh, but I was I was just really struck by the juxtaposition where there's kind of two transactions at once going on here, uh, maybe an unintentional one and certainly not an exploitive one. It, it's one that you know the mother you know you can and you can see in her interactions with Roland Cassard she's like 
what a fine son-in-law he would make, you know. But again, it's it's not played up for this manipulative, greedy, you know, smarmy effect. It's it's a practical concession that this is the world we live in, and we do have to make these kind of calculations, these considerations, uh, in order to you know craft the best life possible, uh, not only for ourselves but for our loved ones. Well, he he's he's empathetic enough to understand why she's reluctant to marry him. Even though he's got all the answers for security right in front of her, he understands it. And that's, you know, again, that's when he sings to her about Lola because he gets it. But he also gets that, you know, this thing with Guy, it probably isn't going to happen. And if it does, it's not going to be easy. And here's going to be a young mother uh, pretty soon, single mom. You know, th- this is a this is a good thing that he that he's that he's doing in a way. And certainly at that time period, he's he probably even even looked upon as someone who's who's condescending to to be so so gracious and to, and take her you know they should be gracious but he never lords over them that way i think he genuinely wants her to be happy and sees that he has the ability to do that if only she'll love him back there's kind of a a socially culturally progressive aspect in all of this as well because this is a this is a teen mother this is an unmarried pregnancy i mean and many parts of the world then and and now still this was kind of scandalous and and this girl you know uh might be shamed or pilloried by by some you know respectable viewers uh Demi is not playing up the you know um the shamefulness of it in any way he's in, he's actually taking a very you know matter of fact view that these things happen and you know getting all in a hissy fit over it because of you know, some moral violation is really not serving any constructive purpose. And I, I mean, I do think about the particular era that this, this film was released, you know, kind of early 60s, uh, really, you know, and, and again, going back to the, the French experience in, in Algeria and kind of America's experience with Vietnam in the late 60s, you almost got a sense of this coming wave of, of cultural transition that's going on here. I mean, this is a this is a, a kind of a hip movie, but it's a it's a hip hipness that's different than kind of later on in the '60s, and again, just kind of the the matter of factness as well as the elegance and the tasteful discretion with which this you know kind of you know uh, somewhat unseemly situation uh, you know a young girl you know pregnant out of wedlock and all of that I, I think he's handling it in a very enlightened way. And it's just another little harbinger of of shifting mores that I think is a uh, to me I, I really enjoy kind of watching these films as a benchmark of you know cultural adjustments. I, I think even the little uh, back and forth, the parrying with the the Tom Jones and the merits of that film <laughs> that that you and I have had with uh, our good friend Aaron and others on social media, kind of. You know, Tom Jones is another relic of this same age. I don't really want to digress into that, but I, I, I kind of link these two movies up as far as uh, just kind of dealing with sexual frankness and, and uh, you know, kind of bursting through taboos and kind of gentle and witty ways. Well, David, I don't want to pull away from that too much because something you just said kind of opened sure. up the film again for me. And it's so my, my favorite scene is the train departure because I think oh the music gosh. is beautiful. Unbelievable, and, yeah. and it just it's 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 just wrenching. It's what it, it probably is. Uh, well, geez, it's it, it's just one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, my second favorite in the movie 
is the one when she is putting the veil over her face and she looks at the she looks at us. You know, Catherine Deneuve breaks the the fourth wall and looks straight at us. And I've always kind of looked at that as her asking, what would we do in this situation? Like, Mm, look look mm -hmm, at me. mm -hmm. Look who I am. What would you do? But what you just said about trying to break through some of these taboos, I also wondered if she's looking at it and saying, what would you have me do? You're, you know, this culture, this society is a part of why I'm here. It pulled, it pulled Guy away from me through nothing that we did on our own, you know, because of some war that we have no part in other than that we're pawns in it. And here I am in this situation where I could wait for him, but you're telling me I can't, that I should go and get security, that I should not be a single, um, you know, teen mother. And yes, there are plenty of reasons for all of this. You know, there's a reason culturally we, we try to avoid this. It's painful. And it's, it's, it's not just painful for you, but for the next generation, for those children. But I do look at that, that look at us to be like, you judge me or don't judge me, you know, and, and, and kind of seeing both sides of that. I used to think she was kind of asking us not to judge because we would do the same thing in her situation. But I, I also wonder how much of that shot is a little bit of disdain for the situation she's been placed in. Well, I don't know. What just, do you guys think about that? It also just gives um, a moment to for us to consider her reflecting on all this. You know, it, it's part of the sequence that happens very quickly where... They decide to get married. It swoops into that dress store and then swoops into the church. And what I like about that moment and then an earlier moment actually where she's replying to a postcard uh, that Roland has sent and she gives kind of a very simple answer and then kind of looks at a picture of Guy. And the film, remarkably restrained for the type of film that it is considering all the singing and the colors and so forth, Mm -hmm. it just kind of fades to black on this kind of like nondescript uh, scene where she's suddenly has to reflect on everything despite not really expressing it in the kind of the musical tones the film has introduced. Uh, and I, I think the same is true in some ways for the shot that you highlighted there. It's just these private moments with her apart from, I guess in some ways, like you said, the public idea we have of uh, unwed mothers and especially unwed teen mothers. Um, it just kind of, uh, it lets you into the fact that she has to process each thing as an individual and has to consider her own life and her own needs and her own circumstances and mm-hmm. that she and now there's this child on the way yeah. too which is another consideration and that she in some ways as the camera expresses kind of feels kind of swept up in it and kind of before she knows it she blinks and she's at the altar um so for as fast as it happens and as beautifully as it's told it's uh at once kind of a reflective and crushing sequence and that fade to black with the it's like that life is over yeah totally yeah right i mean she she puts the photo the photograph over the letter that she's writing in response to the postcard but you see where it goes from there and again the the restraint i mean it's almost kind of a mona lisa quality of her facial expression as she's kind of piously folding her hands uh, at the altar, getting married. Uh, it's there's not a smile, but it's not a frown. It's it's just impeccably like neutral. It's it's she's just in this moment of, of acknowledgement that this is my life. 
he puts the ring on her finger and then he puts the ring on his own finger which is like <laughs> I, maybe that's just the cultural right. tradition and you know it's like but wow you know uh who's who's really you know calling the shots again in the most benign and, and considerate way but you know but again there is still this kind of you know male privilege here there is this you know benevolent patriarchal tone being expressed uh she's got her caretaker now and uh she's kind of set you know and she'll be a beautiful appendage to this very distinguished and caring man uh and that's what it is and it's not a bad thing by any means but it's something different than what she and Guy at least envisioned together and certainly would have had together if you know again if if the you know fates and histories and you know superpowers of the world didn't kind of you know disrupt disrupt their uh, naive wholesome innocent plans and then the film takes her away from us for a long chunk yeah we don't get any yeah. of her that's that, pretty much it i mean until <laughs> until that final scene but yeah well let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, Guy's return from the war then because he comes back a slightly changed man and of course he's not the only one who's changed you know the circumstances the scene the neighborhood has changed the colors are gone yeah, yeah right right exactly and you know and he's been hardened by war and again we don't have to get into you know post-traumatic flashbacks or you know combat horror stories or anything like that it's just understood that you know he's had this experience i guess in the letter that mentions having grenades tossed at him and some of his some of his uh you know fellow soldiers so you know that that says enough right there that you know he's he's been scarred to a certain extent he's been toughened up and when he recognizes that his youth has basically been robbed of him well you know there he is chugging down you know uh goblets of of uh, chardonnay and you know hanging out with hookers and and uh you know he he's toughened up and and uh he's he's a bit of an aimless young man and it, it's it's just an insert it's just a chapter we we obviously know that for some young men this is a detour of their whole life that persists for years he's you know he's brought around the the cycle completes itself a little bit more efficiently and quickly as he finds that there's this stable ground for him to land on uh, even though maybe it wasn't the notion that he had and when he left what he would be coming back to and i'm talking about the relationship with madeline of Mm -hmm. course yeah they they each end up with something comfortable and with spouses that look faithful and loving and then there's that final scene or do you guys want to go there yet or do you have other things before that um, I guess I just wanted to say I always forget how long the third section of the movie is because it feels I don't know it feels like so much of the emotion of the film is in the first two sections there's a lot more decisions that people have to make you know in some ways so much of the third section is Guy just kind of drifting uh, without kind of a plot thing to move him along at all uh, but I like that uh, Demi spends so much time with that section um, we see his aunt pass away we see him you know like like you said just kind of bouncing around bars and hookers and falling out of his job and but it's necessary to get him to a place where he can appreciate a different kind of romance than the one he expected to come back to um not that again i i really don't think that the meat to me paints the marriage he falls into with madeline as lesser it's just it's just different and Mm -hmm. that uh and this will get us towards the final scene but that what I think is most 
valuable at the best of film. And what I really like about so many films in general and what I tend to respond to most is the idea that the life we can end up leading is not the one we expected to have or not the one we even hoped to have, but that it can still be just as good and it can still be just as fulfilling. And I think there's so many indications um, of the way he behaves towards the end of the film that indicates that the hurt he went through both in the war and through his relationship uh, with Genevieve and the way that that ended kind of without his knowing it, um, that hurt is never going to fully go away. And he's never going to completely reconcile and never feel that indifference that you so looked forward to, uh, Trevor. Um, (laughs) But that it's not, in some ways, it's going to make him appreciate what he has even more, that he could go through all that pain and can still feel that pain when he's reminded of it, but come out the other end with such a rich and rewarding and comfortable life. Um, And that I find so moving. Well, yeah, he Madeline is gives him a reason to change and to excel. Even I mean, he becomes a, an owner of a service station, which is great. You know, that's so much better than it looked like he was going to be doing. And she's she's the catalyst for that change. So there's something beautiful about about her and her caring and her loyalty, and for him being able to recognize it and embrace it. So I'm I'm totally with you that this is not a lesser life. By any means, it might be a better life. He and Genevieve may have been horrible to each other eventually, and and you know you just never know what kind of things might have might have happened to him. Maybe they wouldn't have been, but the things that they were looking for in their youth, in that in that love lovely lustful state that they were in, aren't necessarily the things that that are good for them in the long run. And I think he he finds that in Madeline. I'm I'm actually less comfortable that Genevieve has found something that is good for her. Obviously she's financially very well off. Uh, when In the final scene she shows up at Guy's service station and they chat. You know, Guy meets his child. And they, well, he, but, he sort of sees her at a distance. Yeah. He doesn't really go out to meet her. He's really drawn a boundary there. Uh, well, he exactly. sees that she's driving a very nice car um, I think there's a decisiveness to Guy, and I think, again, this is not a didactic, moralistic type of, here's what you should do, young people. I think but, it's the you know, opposite. I think it's right, almost it, well, raising right. its hands and saying, here's just what it is, folks. Make right. of it what you will. But, but you know, Guy has had to do some wrestling. He, he could lose himself in bitterness. He could, you know, uh, just, you know, kind of go off on any number of different tangents, but he, he sort of takes ownership of, of what has happened, things that are outside of his control, but he he seems to focus on the things that are inside of his control. He, he makes that decision to accept Madeline's love and to, you know, sort of, you know, re, reorient himself. And, and that's, you know, that's not necessarily the best choice or one to, to, to put on a pedestal uh, because, you know, Sometimes pining for a lost love or, you know, because fate has really disrupted you. I mean, there is something that is very deep and personal about that. And, and for me to say, well, just get over it and be like Guy is not is not how I want to come across here. But it but it is kind of a uh, sort of sort of a, a challenge to do some introspection, to do some soul searching, uh, whatever sort of disappointments, whatever kind of setbacks we've we've had to absorb uh in the tumult of life and you know make the best decisions 
for yourself and for the people you care most about going forward. And I, and I guess, yeah, that there is a kind of a redemptive quality to this um, where he, you know, they don't have that last passionate embrace. They don't, you know, have that one, you know, sweet kiss uh, to sort of say, hey, let's have that one last little moment of what, what we lost. There's a, there's a kind of a coldness, kind of a reserve there. They realize is, they don't know each other anymore. Exactly. Life has really changed them. And it's like there's a certain door maybe they just don't want to open up or like he, he doesn't want to open up. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just a, such a poignantly rendered scene. Um, and very, I don't know. It, it's, it's just, it's, there's all kinds of dimensions. And I mean, it's, it's one of those scenes you can probably watch and even take different interpretations or impressions away, uh, based on kind of <laughs> where yeah. you're at in your own life or, or maybe applying that kind of, that, that psychological tension or that kind of moment of decision or, you know, again, what would you do in this situation or, um, uh, you know, what have I done in similar situations? These these moments in films of this of this you know quality and of this emotional power are really what you know just keep drawing me back to uh, even rewatch these scenes. You know how will that train parting from the station or or Jean Viev's you know wall breaking looks into the camera hit me somewhere further down the road and uh that's why i love these films well and correct me if i'm wrong but i think during their conversation he doesn't even like tell her that he owns the station for all she knows he's just working at another gas station and there's no he doesn't really come across like he feels like he needs to impress her it might be like a self-preservation thing that he doesn't want to get too involved in this conversation just kind of wants to see her move along in the night and welcome his family back home um but I, i really like that he is at least at a point where, yeah, he, he knows his limits. And if not, perhaps even at a point where he doesn't, you know, feel like whatever attachment he has to her is not going to dictate her perception of him. Isn't going to dictate how he feels about himself. You know, he's very secure and very happy with where he's at. And he's not going to punish her either. He's not going to try to, you know, rake it over her head because she walked out on him or she wasn't there. Like she didn't keep her vows. I mean, that he's beyond all of that as well. Well, and I think the scene gets even more complicated as as it plays out because when she leaves finally, he goes and starts playing with his own child in the snow and then the camera zooms out and we see those red warning flashing lights mm-hmm. that I never quite know how to take those. <laughs> yeah. But it it's an interesting scene. I constantly try to unpack and it makes me complete it, it it's very subversive to me it, it i don't know how to interpret it i like that it's there it's an ugliness at the very end you've got this world that looks beautiful and then these like gated yes. really rigid you know warning yeah. th- not just the lights this. but the pl- <laughs> the the barrier there a lovely little SO branded snow globe there <laughs> with some kind of industrial uh you know bric a brac kind of marring the uh you know the the, the vista there yeah. but yeah it is I, I don't know what it makes me happy or sad the way that they end up you know and and it's both and it's it's neither because it's kind of like well that's just the way it is and they're both in decent places but the warning well, lights I, I don't what do you guys th- what are the warning lights well, as another great director once had his character say, 
isn't life disappointing? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I really feel like we're in that same territory. It's just, it's just an acknowledgement of the, just kind of the wrenching sadness. Um, Not that it's fundamentally sad and hopeless and awful, but there's just, there's just this, you know, few degrees or sometimes much worse off from perfection. And even when it feels like it's right there for the taking, there's just that little fly in the ointment that kind of throws things off balance. And we, we just have to reckon with the fact that, you know, disappointments, um, frustrations, even a slight sense of futility are kind of inherent in the mix. So what do you do with it? Hmm. I, I, to me, it's just, it's, it's a very skillful way of, of kind of allowing us to confront that without giving into despair and not, kind of blinding ourselves in this kind of Pollyanna optimism. Well, and you're right. If, if the film didn't have that, it would end with him playing with his child in the snow and it would be beautiful. And we'd think, Oh, everything is okay. He's in a good spot. He's moved on. She's rich. Everything's hunky dory. Right. And I think that one of the supplements, I think it's the essay talks about it as a warning basically to, to the audience to withhold judgment a little bit. I, I, it's been a while since I've read it, but I feel like that's in there. It's definitely covered in the interview with Rodney Hill, and he has a different reading on it, with which I entirely disagree. But I'll let you finish yeah, your thoughts before we get into I that. I agree with that either. What, what were your thoughts, Scott? Um, well, he kind of Rodney Hill kind of posits it as this warning to I can't remember exactly, but something like be sure to, or a warning against ignoring uh, the true loves in your life or something, which I don't really think is the message of the movie at all. And I don't know. I, I, I I never really latched onto the the little flashing light um, until he brought it up in that uh, interview. And now that you've brought it up, it makes me think, feel like I I should take it more seriously. If it, if this means there's something there, I mean, it's too deliberate. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely unusual, but I guess I don't, I mean, I'll have to reflect on it further because, like I said, it's not something I thought about until, like, yesterday. Um, but I I can't immediately see it as, like, any kind of warning one way or another. I think it's maybe – it could be just his uh, pulsing emotion that he's, you know, playing happy but is still kind of feeling a certain rush of adrenaline or of regret or of what else. You know, his heart's still racing underneath. Um, I have a hard time viewing it um, – I don't want to say you're viewing it cynically. I guess I have a hard time viewing it as some kind of message or instructive. Uh, We're not talking capacity. about Rosebud here yeah, or something like that. <laughs> I, I, I think <laughs> so much of Demi's aesthetic is in reflecting the characters and adding different dimensions to their emotion. And I don't think his choices, at least at this stage, are um, intellectual, I guess. I, I don't think he's forming these things well, thematically exactly. Right. The, the action kind of kicks in with a red garage light i mean it says the words garage it kind of kicks in and again that's synced with the music so you've got kind of a red light starting the story and a red light kind of guiding us out there may just be a little last little color burst (laughs) as as much as we really know (laughs) but but it's, it's fascinating food for thought and again maybe it just brings us i know we're kind of running short on time here i want to start wrapping things up but you know we've already talked about the the visual design but i mean what an incredible production of of sets and colors and wallpapers and fabrics and and how things are just so 
sublimely coordinated and complementary. It's just, you know, just amazing. Uh, the scarf just kind of lines right up with the wallpaper and, and his blue tie is on that little slice of, of blue wallpaper off to the side. I mean, there's just all sorts of these moments where uh, the, the visual compositions, they, they, they come across as, as, as so free and breezy, and yet you know there's just so much you know, thought and planning and to, to balance that. I mean, you know, there may be some who might think this is a little ostentatious or even as I had kind of, um, I think inaccurately surmised it, uh, you know, in, in kind of periods between viewings of like, Oh, it's just kind of a big, you know, candy colored dream, you know, but it's, there's, there's something else going on there. I'm not even sure I've got the right words for it, but it's just such a, it's such an, an impressive, feet of, of, of set construction and, and just the coordination of all of that. It, you know, it's probably belaboring the obvious to go on about it, but I just, it is astonishing every time. And then again, you know, the music, the way that all blends in. So I just kind of want to give that one last, uh, standing ovation there. Yeah. And I think it does a lot for the film, um, in terms of its emotional content. I think one of the reasons I didn't attach myself to the film too strongly at first is as much I mean I adore musicals it's maybe my favorite genre and so you know when I heard the prospect of a sung through musical I was like all right we're we're in business but so much of what I tend to respond to in musicals is uh the bursts of emotion I guess and the kind of highs and lows and then of course the dancing and there's not much dancing in this film um and in fact, no, there's a really nice spot where they're about to do a mambo and yeah. is out there shake and they cut away. It's like no, give me two minutes of that. <laughs> give please. me something. Uh, but right, right. the and in fact, most of what we hear sung is not like the kind of emotional burst that you tend to see in musical numbers. It's like we said earlier uh, in the episode, it's mostly kind of mundane dialogue and you know, they'll stumble into reflections. Ask but, me the soul. Yeah. <laughs> right. They'll stumble into reflections, but no more reflective than, you know, dialogue could accomplish. There's no precise reason why this has to be sung through other than it feels right by the end. But I think so much of that kind of burst of emotion that you typically get in a musical is done through the, color palette and the way that these colors interact with each other. This is something that uh, Rodney Hill pointed out in his interview that I do absolutely agree with is the kind of contrast, how they'll enter one room with one color in a minor key and one in a major key. And then those two colors will reverse when they go into a different room. Um, And just all these different contrasts of the way that uh, emotions are packaged in different spaces and the way that people take different prominence in different spaces is very smartly reflected in the color design uh, and then there's more obvious uses like the kind of red rooms for both uh, the brothel and the dance hall they go to, which is kind of these like very heated uh, emotional spaces. Um, and then when they get out to like the train station, there's very, very kind of subdued grays and reality kind of setting in. Um, so there's so much that is done through the color design that I think is hard to pick up in the first view because you're just kind of feeling your way along through the movie. But I think on repeated views, the more I watch it, the more I can notice these kind of uh, touches that are in some ways feel very major. But like I said, David, it's hard to put your finger on why, but it's all, I think, very deliberate and very instructive for how to view the movie. Yeah, well, thanks, guys. I, I think 
I think we could probably each go on in various ways, and I would I would love to continue that on. But you know, we've been going for a bit over an hour now, so we can we can start to wrap up. Um, but yes, I want to echo what you both just said about all of the different things that come together on the film, and that's that's why it's one of my all time favorites. Uh, you know, of any film, let alone just in the Criterion Collection, it just it works on me even when I don't expect it to. It, you know, I can pop it in for a few minutes just to watch a scene, and and I'm back in it. I am fully invested and engaged, and and there's so much going on there from the technical side that it just it's just kind of a work of genius. I think that how it all how it all came together in such a simple seeming film that has so much else uh, happening around the surface. But um, but yes, very nice to chat with you both tonight. Looking forward to our next uh, our next one already. But um, David, what have you got going on between now and uh, and whenever that may be? <laughs> oh well, um, the second season, the nineteen seventy uh, chapter of Criterion Reflections, got launched last week. I've leaked a couple episodes here. Our uh, season opener with the Volker Schlondorf bow, me and William Remmers, and then uh, Robert Taylor and Jonathan Lobinger. We recorded back in February an episode on Zadoichi meets Yojimbo. So those have both been published. I have another one in the can on the Honeymoon Killers, which will probably be coming out uh, probably next week. Uh, you know, I'll give it a little bit of time for these other two episodes to settle in. I, I, I want to get a little back inventory here without having too much delay between recording and publication. Uh, so Honeymoon Killers is the next one up, and then I'm starting work. I've actually recorded a pretty significant session on um, the investigation of a citizen above suspicion with Matt Gasteyer. So it's kind of fun to get you know, kind of single episode films going there. Um, and, uh, yeah, from there I got Tristana coming up, uh, Luis Benuel, kind of, uh, an old Criterion Laserdisc, uh, which is now uh, apparently on Filmstruck too. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of looking ahead on that. And I think you and I probably will be getting together for another Eclipse viewer in yeah, the not too distant yeah. future. The Ingrid Bergman set is due for release on April 10th and we'll see if we can, get that one in sometime in the you know coming weeks there. So I'm already starting to queue those up on Filmstruck before the set is released just to kind of get a little familiar familiarity with Ms. Bergman's earliest uh, phases of her career. So that's what I got going on. How about you, Scott? Um, uh, last week, uh, well, okay, backstory. A month ago, uh, listeners may or may not know, I got married, uh, so my new lovely wife and I appeared on Battleship Pretension to talk about wedding movies and kind of how they reflected our experience and in some ways didn't. And it was, it was a really fun discussion. So that's up on Battleship Pretension now. Uh, I've written recently a couple articles about Ingmar Bergman as it's his uh, centenary and there's much ado about... You don't say, really. <laughs> that one snuck up on me. <laughs> much ado about Bergman these days, which I'm very, very into. Um and then I'll be very, very busy the next couple of months. Um, I'll be doing uh, the Noir City retrospective that they do every year in L.A., and I'll be covering TCM Fest for Criterion Cast, which happens at the end of April. And then the Bergman Centenary rolls through, so I'll probably be writing about that as I go to all those movies. And then I'll be uh, off to Ireland and New York and hopefully try to file some kind of pieces about the film scenes in both of those places as uh, they'll be mostly new to me, so that'll be exciting. 
Excellent. That does sound fun. It'll be nice to, to follow along a little bit to, to whatever you, you let us see on online. <laughs> but, uh, but listeners, we'll be back sometime in the mix of all of that that we've all got going on for another film on Criterion Cast. Until then. <laughs>